The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, guys, welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today we're going to do a little bit constricted, talking about Peds asthma. So uh, today on the podcast, we've got Matthew Branch, one of our AirCare 4 CCPs, coming to join us for the first time. Uh, Dr. Matthew Moretti, who is our, one of our PDZR attendings we see all the time. He's also the PDZM Fellowship Director. And joining us again today is the Ben White. Uh, from AirCare 2, one of our CCP RNs, and then I'm Will, uh, one of the AirCare CCP's educator. So today we're going to talk about asthma, specifically in pediatrics. So just to break down the definition that I straight stole out of a textbook, um, it's the chronic heterogeneous inflammatory disorder of the respiratory tract, tightening a respiratory smooth muscle, narrowing the respiratory passageways, and mucosa with episodes of bronchoconstriction. Included in exacerbation is bronchoconstriction, mucus buildup, inflamed mucosa, and increased vascular permeability. That's a lot. Um, Short version from the CDC, 1 in 11 children have asthma and 1 in 12 adults. So it's quite common. We see it quite frequently all the time here at the Children's Hospital or in transport, uh, especially down here in the south where there's pollen everywhere and all kinds of irritants that like to trigger it. so when you start talking about asthma, there's different levels of asthma. There's, it's a chronic disease. It happens every day. Um, some people do well with it. Some people don't. Um, some people are able to manage it relatively easy, preventatively. Some people, it's a challenge, um, to say the least. So there's different levels of exacerbation and when it actually flares up. So there's mild, moderate, severe, and failure. Um, I'd say typically we get involved more often than not from a critical care transport side of the street is usually severe or failure. Um, that being said, you see it every day in the ER at all levels. That's right. Um, I'd say most of them are moderate. When yeah. When you start seeing emergency medicine. I think we have, there's lots of different ways to define it. Um, you know, like you said, there's textbooks that kind of have it. I like to use a past scoring system, which is a pediatric asthma score. There's a lot of them out there. Um, Historically, we've used the one that Thomas Abramo kind of developed um, and looked at, and it kind of gives you, you get a point system. It makes it really easy. You don't have to memorize anything. You literally just go down the points, zero, one, two, or three, um, and add it all together. And if they're zero to five, they don't have an asthma exacerbation. We're not even worried about it. Uh, five to seven, we usually call that mild. Uh, eight to 11, we're gonna call that moderate. And then 12 to 15, is that severe failure area, right? So um, within that, the context of like, which one's severe, which one's failure, it gets a little more complicated um, if they're alert and oriented and they can move some air that I'm not gonna call them failure. If they're not responsive, it doesn't matter, they're failure. Um, I like that approach, then I don't have to memorize anything and it takes the subjectiveness out of it. it Yeah, it's just easier. Yeah, anything that I have to memorize a whole lot of stuff for and like think about and kind of put together is just gets complicated, especially if things look bad. It's just pull out a card, one, two, three, four, five, you know, up this kid's a 14. So we're in trouble. So identifying, we talked about different levels, identifying asthma. 
Um, one of the first things I do with every patient is one, you, you got to touch them. You can't treat people if you don't actually touch your patients. Number two, across the room, the mental status. Uh, to me, it's a big thing with asthma. How do y'all use mental status as far as judging your management and looking at asthma patients? I'm big with mental status. Uh, if you think about it, and even if you think about previous podcasts, we talked about um, that's part of in organ perfusion. And I understand when you're talking about perfusion, you're looking at blood pressure, but you're also looking at oxygen delivery to the body. So mental status, whatever your method of using mental status, I, I hold it high in my patient assessment. However, you need to understand what is normal for that patient. Every every assessment that we do to a patient, even though we gotta, we're in a ballpark realm of this, we have to understand that this assessment is still tailored to this specific patient. So normals versus not normals. And again, we get off into normal. Normal is a terrible word in this world because there's no really no true normal. So I do think, you know, it's something that everybody needs to kind of get used to thinking about because whether you're in the pre-hospital setting, whether you are, you know, EMT basic or, you know, all the way up into the ICU, you know, knowing how to assess mental status is important as part of the pediatric assessment triangle, uh, which we teach all the time. You know, that level of alertness is a big deal. Um, and like I said, you know, I don't call them failure until they can't talk to me. Um so looking for that level of alertness, it's really important in the diagnosis of asthma as far as trying to decide how significant this exacerbation is, because one of the big parts of this is dyspnea. And so can the patient talk to you? Uh, can they count to 10 if they're really little? Can they speak to you in a full sentence? If they're not alert, they can't do any of those things. And so it makes it really complicated. So making sure to think about that patient's mental status in real time helps you figure out how severe they are. Like you said, it's a major indicator of how well the patient's oxygenating, how well the patient's ventilating. If your carbon dioxide level is just skyrocketing, you know, it doesn't matter what you think you hear on exam, that patient will not be responsive. And so uh, it's a good, quick indicator of how well the system is working whether it's from a perfusion standpoint, you know, circulation, or whether it's from an oxygenation, ventilation, respiratory situation. Absolutely. I agree that, you know, for me personally, <clears throat> mental status is probably my, that's my go-to on everything because I can start assessing it from the time that I walk through the door. Yeah. So, and that, that kind of lets me know, all right, where I'm at as far as the level of exacerbation is concerned and how aggressive I need to be with this patient um and that's you know that's every patient it's regardless if it's a, an asthma patient pediatric patient adult patient that lets me know where i'm at as far as the care of this patient so. it can be a little complicated when you start talking about some of these adult folks um and even teenagers because there's lots of things that those people use in their lives that may alter their mental status that has absolutely nothing to do with their asthma exacerbation um, so taking things into account like, you know, intoxications or other medications can be really important. In my world, in pediatrics, it's really difficult. Something we fight a lot with um, in the floors where they use a PUSE system to try to figure out how sick a patient is. S being asleep counts as really high, but if it's three in the morning, you should be asleep. That's so, one of the big yeah. things is think about, you know, I used to work night shift for a lot of years it's 3 a.m. Well, the, the patient won't arouse, or I think you need to intubate them. 
it's 3 a.m. The kid's been up all night. You've right. kept the kid up all night or whatever. You know, it's a three or four-year-old. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be awake anyway. That three or four-year-old is definitely going to want to pass out, so let them pass out. And at the same token with what you just said, you know, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, you know, we're going to a pediatric asthma patient and we walk in, <clears throat> is there level of alertness? Is that due to the path? Is that due to the, the asthma or is that due to the fact that, like you said, they're just tired? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, I've seen that missed a few times, yep. but the opposite, they were like, well, it's three o'clock in the morning. She's just really sleepy right now, or he's just really sleepy right now. And I walk in and you have, you know, all the signs of severe asthma exacerbation and impending respiratory failure. Impending respiratory yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can't have respiratory failure at three in the morning. Oh, no, no. <laughs> so you you have to look at it on both sides. I mean you, you have to that's where your exam, your assessment comes into play. Um so once we get through the door, do the mental status kind of from the doorway thing. I think most of us do that anyway. Whether at any level, to your point of emergency medicine or resuscitative medicine, respiratory effort, especially in kids, um, it's progressive, right? So you start off with, hey, something flared up or got a little bit over time, it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, how do y'all look at progression? And what are what are some little things or tricks you may use to figure out how hard a kid's working or how hard somebody is working to breathe? For me, um, you know, if they're going to be tachypnic, you know, and it, whether depending on the level of exacerbation or level that you're at at that time, you know, you, you got to start looking for retractions and where the retractions are actually happening at. I mean, if you have the intercostal retraction, do you have the subclavicular retractions? Where Where is the retractions at at that time? Um, I think that that goes back to just knowing which knowing these patients, having the experience with these patients and kind of just looking at all patients regardless to where you know the difference between a normal patient or the severe respiratory failure, impending failure patient. That's for me, it's just looking at looking at the breathing, actually expose the chest to where you can see if there's any retractions or is there is there abdominal breathing where, you know, what type of respiratory pattern does the patient have? That's for me is just the kind of what I look for. Yeah, I think um, we we know that it's progressive. I think one of the beautiful things about that is in buried in that statement is an implication that you're going to reassess patients, right? And so I think that's one of the difficult things in the emergency setting is you've got 15 other patients who are breaking. Uh, for us, remembering and making space and time to go back and reassess is really really important. Um, this is one of the reasons I like the PASS score. Um, you can quickly reassess and see that progression. It specifically looks at tachypnea, as you mentioned, and kind of gives you ranges at which you should start worrying. Um, it looks at level of dyspnea, right? So the patient could speak in a full sentence or count all the way to 10 versus he can only say one letter or one word at a time. Uh, the variation in retractions, most of the time, if you're really mild, um, you're only going to have those intercostal retractions. Then you hit the big bottoms, then you hit the big tops, and, and it starts to just kind of accelerate from there. Um, although, back to that mental status thing, like if, at some point those go away. 
uh, because the patient's effort has lost. Um, and so you start to see those go away. And so it's important from that standpoint as well, watching those things that you saw were progressively escalating and then suddenly they're not escalating anymore. And you don't really feel like you made a significant difference in your management. It reminds you to go back and reassess that situation. Something else to, to bring up when you talk about retractions, specifically like subclavicular retractions to me are the ones I really, really worry about. If a patient suddenly changes and they get relaxed from having those retractions, that is not a, usually a good thing. Yeah. Oh, well, they're, they're getting better. Oh, I gave them, I put them on a non-rebreather. I did some, some base, I call basic intervention, but I did something simple and they have that sudden change. That's usually not a good sign. Um, if it's a true exacerbation. Yeah. Any super, any super clavicular, any super sternal retractions, that's pretty far end. So if there is a sudden improvement, it's not a bad idea to just go back through and reassess everything because small improvement to a severe problem that's usually not how it works. And also just, just understand the basic mechanics of ventilations too when you look at your patients. I mean, we're talking about asthma right now. Asthma's early on is a process of getting air out. That's the complications. So understand that inhalation is an active process. Exhalation is a passive process. So you're just relaxing and body, I mean, the air is being expelled out of the body. So if you're sitting here watching this patient work just as hard to get air out as they're trying to get air in with that, um, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, that's not right. And all of a sudden, now, all of a sudden, the kid's are like, huh. Mm-hmm. All right. That kid went, huh, for a reason. Probably because they're not going to breathe much longer. Um, it kind of brings up with breathing talk about wheezing. So when y'all think of asthma, do you automatically think of wheezing? Or is there something else that maybe clues you in, hey, this could be going on? And then when you start talking about wheezing there's different stages of wheezing and there's different types so what, what are y'all's thoughts on just the wheezers in general so wheezing is a complicated term um, it has a specific medical definition it has a specific tonal definition um, and it's a physics thing and so lots and lots of things can create that process so one of the things that is really important for us is um, in the emergency room i have to decide if this is asthma at all uh, because just because I hear a sound that sounds like wheezing um, does not mean that it meets the definition that you kind of have laid out there. You know, all I know is that there is lower is there there is a narrowed lower airway, and the cause of that could be mm-hmm. numerous, Absolutely. right? So asthma in and of itself, like you said, is a multi-piece problem. It's chronic inflammation. It's acute bronchodilation or bronchoconstriction. It's mucus plugging and excessive secretion. Um, all caused generally by some atopic process or allergic type process. Um, beyond that, you know, we see a tremendous amount of wheezing in our very, very young patients who have bronchiolitis because they have significant lower airway inflammation and secretions from their disease. They don't have asthma. Um, and, you know, so, so being able to kind of tease out or even just starting at the beginning and saying, don't forget that there are differences. Don't forget that everything that wheezes is not asthma um, is super important at the get-go. There are cardiac reasons to wheeze. There are pulmonary reasons to wheeze. There are mechanical reasons to wheeze. 
we get kids not infrequently that small those small rocks and beads and they went down the wrong pipe and they're wheezing you know they're not stridering they don't have upper airway obstruction because the object was too small but they do have focal wheezing you know down in their right lower lobe or something like that so i think bearing that in mind is really really important at the get-go wheezing is simply turbulent airflow through the smallest of airways due to some sort of narrowing uh, and so it it does not automatically always mean that this patient is an asthma patient. And because of that, it doesn't mean, does not mean that if I'm giving albuterol or some sort of short acting bronchodilator, that it's going to fix the problem. And if it doesn't fix the problem that I need to escalate, because maybe we're not dealing with that problem at all. Um, when y'all think of just kind of prompting this out here, Expiratory wheezing is the most common. So we see typically with the asthmatics. Um, what happens when it gets diminished? Again, are those patients you're giving albuterol to, but you start talking about trigger fingers to work on a more pharmacological agents. When it starts going away, what does that mean to y'all? So for me, it can mean one of two things. It can mean, all right, we're getting the bronchial dilation and the patient could potentially get better. And that's where I start looking at the respiratory status again look to see you know is how are the retractions are they getting worse are they getting better or when they're going away it could be getting a lot worse and it could be getting to the point where the patient's just not taking a deep enough breath due to fatigue it could be the airways are so constricted that you just there's no movement no sound whatsoever so for me just because it goes away doesn't mean that we're out of the woods yet. I think that's when you go back to your reassessment and you start, I start looking real close, real deep at that point, just to make sure this is what's happening. Make sure the patient's getting better or is the patient getting worse and do I need to escalate my treatment with this patient? Yeah, for sure. Quiet chest is an ominous finding. Uh, so if the wheeze goes away, but you also don't hear anything else, that's a huge problem, right? Just like we said, this is a flow problem, right? It's a physics problem. So you get turbulent flow through that narrowed airway. If you're so narrowed that there's no flow, there's no sound. Uh, and the same thing when you're listening to breath sounds, you know, you never hear laminar flow, but nobody has laminar flow. So if you hear a silent chest, that means there's no flow. That doesn't mean that flow is perfect. So for us, one of the things that we, are, we caution residents very aggressively about is that quiet chest. We get people come back all the time, you know, oh, the wheezing's gone, I don't hear anything, it sounds okay. And then the nurse comes running and is like, uh, the patient's like, I don't hear jack. <laughs> or the RT comes out and is like, they asked me to reassess and I don't hear anything. And so, you know, there's a definite important distinction that's made there. Are we talking that the wheezing is diminished, but everything else sounds okay? Or has everything diminished? That's right. That's a, yeah, that's a that's different a, story. That's a falling off the edge. That patient's about to be failure. I think the the one one experience I've had over the years where it was, oh yeah, we think we got them better. Everything's quiet. It's real quiet. And as soon as I'm walking up to the patient, and as soon as they said quiet, I'm like, you know, ears perk up. You're like, all right, well, what's going on? And the reason it was quiet is because it had a huge pneumo. Yeah. Um, yeah. There again to the no flow thing. So keep in mind, like we were all talking about, these kids are typically to kipnick is snot when you first get to them it's not uncommon for them especially you know real skinny kids pop a chest so keep that in the back of your head as like hey 
obstructive problem too. Yeah. So if I have that patient, because you're exactly right, uh, asthma is definitely one of the high risk factors for pneumothorax. Um, if I have a quiet chest, I'll honestly probably grab an ultrasound and really quickly just throw it on the chest and see if I see lung sliding or absolutely no lung sliding. Um, it can be a little difficult in severe asthma exacerbation because there won't be as much air movement, but you'll see something happening. If you've completely lost movement in that chest, you, we've got we've got a big issue. It may be one of those you may not have to, you may not just be able to stick a probe on there and see it, but if you put an M mode and you look for that sandy beach at the barcode, you can you, know, you see that barcode. You're, okay, yep, cool. Let's put a needle in it and call it a day. Yeah, and in that regard, I think that you know a, a lot of a lot of places they always wait for that chest X-ray. Yeah. And you know that could take that could take a long time depending on where you're at. But and if you have what that, your level of training is, absolutely, you feel comfortable reading the chest X-ray, putting your name on it. Absolutely. But if you have an ultrasound, I mean that takes seconds, yeah. and you can actually see real time what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very useful tool in these situations, and for most patients, I yeah. think it's a very useful tool. It's just an it's another diagnostic tool for us. Absolutely. So getting down, we've talked a little bit about assessment. Let's let's get down on management of these kids. Um, everybody's favorite. So I'll beat her all real quick. We pretty much give it like candy. Yeah. Um, only thing I'll say about albuterol is heart rate, heart rate, heart rate. Um, and it drives them up. Sure. Yep. It does. So how do y'all feel about it? What's your uh, What's your trigger for continuous? What's what's your making? Everybody says, okay, I'm going to give them three back-to-back-to-back. What makes you think, hey, this kid's going to need albuterol continuously or you can need a lot more than that? So I'm a little different. Uh, I don't love going through the full pathway. <laughs> I, I don't like giving three and then reassessing and then giving three to an EBS and then reassessing and then giving. You know, that's we're already at 45 minutes at this yeah. point, right? That's a long time. Yeah. So one of the cool things that, we we have used the past for you know there are very few things if you look in the literature that truly make a difference in hospital length of stay time in the icu those types of things one of the few things that can be done that really has a fairly significant impact in the literature is speed to your maximal point of intervention Uh, how long does it take you to go from you know starting the assessment to whatever that level ultimate level is in a lot of cases continuous the faster you get there overall the faster the patient starts getting better because all the stuff that you did at the front end was probably wasted uh and so it didn't really make a difference as far as breathing treatments go short acting beta agonists so i will use the pass score and if i've got a 14 or 15 i'm probably just going to throw them straight on continuous and just skip all the rest of that because that saves the patient 45 minutes of just sitting there um, redoing meds reassessments all this kind of stuff we're just going to throw them right on especially if they've already if they have a history of asthma you know nine times out of ten they are being treated outside the facility or outside our care so it's like paramedic students when i talk to them you know assess your surroundings when you go in there if that kid is has a history of asthma and you look down and mom's got 14 you know albuterol packets tore open right there Okay, they've met your three that you need for your protocol. Let's find another route for this patient. You're already at the next step, and I think that's an important part is getting a history on these these patients. Because as you said, I mean, if most of the time, if a if a patient has asthma, the family is very well aware of that, and they're 
fairly aggressive with it. So whether it's the meter dose inhalers or they have a nebulizer at home, they've already done the initial treatment right. and the patient's not getting worse, which is why they're here. So I, I think that's uh, the assessment portion of that is the, is the biggest part. And like for me, you know, if, as he said, if they have that history, if the family's already been aggressive, I'm already at the next four steps. Right. You know, I'm, I'm already there from the second I lay my eyes on that kid. That's, that's for me. I think a lot of it is with asthma in general, and I'll just go ahead and say it, it's you have to be proactive. If you're a reactive with a reactive disease, it does not go well. Yeah. Um, and so if you, if you stay proactive and stay on top of it of, I like the, the 14 different <laughs> albuterol packets because I'm sitting here thinking, like, I've seen that a lot. Yeah, a lot. Every, every asthma uh, patient you walk in? Yeah, like yeah. they're just sitting there, you know. There may be one atrovent thrown in the mix. But, you know, make sure you go ahead. All right, cool. They're there, 15 milligrams an hour. Doesn't matter what size you are. Hit them with it and let's go. Um, cool. We're going to keep giving them albuterol. It seems to work a little bit, but I'm going to keep it there. I want to give them that. As, as you've said it twice now, I'm going to say it a third time, they're short-acting beta agonists. They're not long-term fix. Um, but keep in mind, if they've had 14 of them, they could be a little dehydrated and they could be a little bit, their heart rate might be 200. They don't need to be cardioverted right now. Yeah. I think okay. it's important to kind of, those heart rate things and those other physiologic changes are at least important to discuss because that's the biggest reason I see people in other facilities or in the pre-hospital setting feel uncomfortable with escalating or maybe turning off their escalated therapy because uh, they get nervous about those types of things. Uh, albuterol and any of its other versions, whether you're talking continuous, whether you're talking about meter dose inhaler or, or any of those things, these are all beta agonists. So, and they're topical, but they also absorb. So the idea that it's going to stay in the lungs is, is not realistic, right? And beyond that, there's a crap ton of vasculature in there and so you're going to absorb that so it's going to affect the heart there's no such thing as a beta agonist that doesn't affect the heart um, and so that is going to happen and it also because it's beta agonist causes catecholamine surging so you're going to see those hormones go way up um, you're going to see some physiologic changes that are just a part of it you know the patient's going to have increased insensible losses um, which is one of the reasons why we make sure to include some sort of hydrated modality of administration of drug so that we can kind of hopefully decrease the amount of fluid that's lost in the inspiratory and expiratory process. Um, you're going to see the lactate go up. You're going to see the potassium go down. You're going to see all those changes. It doesn't mean the patient is like absolutely fluid dehydrated it doesn't it doesn't mean that it just that's a natural physiologic response to aggressive catecholamine surging and beta agonism so we're going to see those things it almost never is so problematic that you truly need to turn it off this is one of the reasons why we recommend early 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 giving steroids um, there's a an assumption that the steroid is really there for inflammatory decrease and that's not actually how that works in regards to a acute asthma um, the inflammatory improvement that steroids provide is usually six hours down the road so it's not right now. it's not it's now that is not doing anything that's but we like still that. tell people give it right now uh, and if it really was not going to be something that mattered that soon it wouldn't really matter if you gave it in the first half hour or if you gave it an hour and a half down the road um, so why does it matter now because the reality is one of the things that glucocorticoids like or pred or solumedrol or decadron do 
is it actually increases the um, the expression uh, or availability of the beta receptor. So your body's already made way more beta receptor than it needs. It's sitting inside the cell just waiting to be activated. It's one of the things that epinephrine does or your stress hormones do is upregulate that. So because it's already made, because it's just sitting there, that thing happens within the first hour. So you give that steroid and already within the first hour you see upregulation or up expression of the beta agonist. So it makes your or of, of the beta receptor. So it makes your beta agonist work better. So the scary thing that people talk about in critical care medicine or intensive care medicine is tachyphylaxis, where you have run out of beta receptor in your lungs, but you haven't run out of it in your heart. And so you just see that heart rate go up and up and up and up and up and no change in the lung. Well, that's what the steroid's for. The steroid upregulates that, up expresses it, and all of a sudden you've got a lot more beta receptor to work with in your lungs. So you don't get tachyphylactic as quickly. Um, those two are kind of rising together. Now, if you wait two and a half hours for your salt, uh, for your steroid and you're giving continuous, yeah, you're not going to see a patient get a whole ton better, but you're going to see that heart rate go to, you know, go to the sky. Um, so that should be one of the first steps. You know, if you've decided, like you said, that the patient's got asthma, the patient's got asthma, give them a steroid, start their therapies all at the same time. Yeah. That way you can prevent yourself from getting into that hole where you're just worried about the heart rate. Yep. And getting going down that rabbit hole quickly yeah yeah um real fast attribute don't forget it out of your algorithm don't get wrapped around the axle with it but don't forget it um less than 20 kilos 250 mics greater than 2500 um zopinex just because I, I had to bring it up because waste it, of money it's uh it's one of those things that we have to talk about because i know everybody's seeing it in their career we still see people use it. Yeah. We still actively just, see people use it. It does not work for critical patients. I'll throw it, that. It's just not any different. You know, the idea, so, you know, for anybody that's not familiar, ZopenX was created because they believed that they used one of the chemical versions of albuterol. It would not cause as much heart rate change. And that just has never panned out. Um, in real life, in the ICU, in the ER, in the back of an ambulance or in a helicopter, those patients are going to have heart rate changes, period. There's, it doesn't help with albuterol allergies, whatever the heck that means. Um, it doesn't help with any of those things. But it costs a heck of a lot more. Um, Absolutely. But I've ne- I have never, ever seen that actually make a difference. And think about it, too. When you give the albuterol, what's happening? We are dilating bronchial, so therefore we're getting an increase in tidal volume, getting an increase in oxygen being delivered. So the heart, there's not a mechanism in there that goes, okay, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. All of a sudden it senses a increase in oxygen. So it says, oh crap, I got to pump a little bit faster, a little bit harder to flow this oxygen that's now coming into the pulmonary system. So I agree with you 100%. I think it's just a big old expensive yeah. waste of money. Um, we are at home with Medrol, which is my next thing on the list. Again, big thing with steroids, give them early. Just Go ahead and knock it out. All right, let's talk about the my favorite drug in asthma. Personally, mag. Yes. So what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one. Yeah, magnesium is very controversial. Um, the theory is that it's a smooth muscle relaxer, right? And so if a portion of asthma is smooth muscle constriction in the lungs, logically 
that should be very helpful. It's non-selective. It literally goes everywhere. It hits every smooth muscle. Um, and so logically, it, it makes sense that it should make a difference. And so years and years ago, there was this big push for magnesium. And there still kind of is. But the literature's actually never found that to be helpful at all. If you look, there's no good large-scale studies that have ever shown mag to have any major clinical endpoint improvements. Uh, anecdotally, it helps. You know, there's probably most doctors that I know um, who use it, most critical care transporters who use it will tell you that it helps their patients. It is very difficult to prove that, though. Um, because most of the time you're giving it on continuous albuterol or after they've been on continuous albuterol for a while, which one fixed anything, super hard to know. Um, but it's controversial. I love it, anecdotally. <laughs> yeah. uh, I but I can't point to anything that tells us. And there's, I'm glad you brought it up, there's not a lot of literature that's out there that says, hey, mag's what did it. And I think part of that is is the patients that get mag sometimes i think it's a late trigger pull i think it's uh, i want to wait to give a mag and so when you're giving the mag you're giving them everything else at the same yeah, time so it's hard shotgun to, approach yeah at this point. What, so what worked and you yeah. don't really know um everybody sitting at this table has given mag i know oh, absolutely a lot i um, give it every time i put somebody on continuous yeah yeah every time but, but i still like can't said, point to anything that says it did it your understanding and your theory behind why it's supposed to work you're like well it's got to work yeah this just <laughs> makes sense so what's what's y'all's trigger pull with mag? I mean, continuous or very short. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like, hey, how much? I'm one of those. Even when I get dispatched to this, the first thing I ask, you know, our dispatch center has mag been started on the patient, especially if it's a pediatric. Has mag been started? Not yet. Okay, you can tell them to do it. Or we're going to do it when we get there. But you know, that's one of the things. By the time that we get called, you're already thinking, all right, this patient's in the severe or impending failure stage. So, like I said. Me, I'm I'm walking in with mag already mixed over my shoulder, ready to go. Because yeah. um, even if we, you know, if we don't know if it's the actual one that it, actual medicine that improved the patient, you know, with these patients, if you're aggressive with them, you can turn them around really fast. So why not? Yeah. Why not go ahead and throw it at them? And part of the reason that the way this this episode is geared, I'm talking about drugs first. Drugs typically with these kids. I mean, don't get me wrong. We'll get to the respiratory stuff in a minute early onset and early administration of a lot of these drugs helps yeah. and you yeah. can avoid those intubation heaven forbid or BiPAP and all those other things if you get proactive with this stuff you can avoid a lot of the other stuff downstream with mag um, max of two grams depending on what size you are at a time biggest thing I think one of the controversies people worry about is um, and sometimes the reason they're late to pull the trigger with it is it's a non-discriminatory smooth muscle relaxer, so what does it do to your blood pressure? Hypotension. But to, to piggyback what he was saying earlier, they're dry. Yeah. And we're also, you think, think of asthma, you also think of mucus production. you got an increase in mucus production, so we need to be considering fluids early on in this patient, especially in the pediatric world, along with blood glucose monitoring with these patients. So let's go ahead and give them the fluid up front, knowing that this is probably where we're going to be. I don't want to go to this step. But knowing that I'm possibly fixing to have to go this step, let's let's eliminate the process. I mean, let's eliminate that effect early on by giving them that little bit of fluid bolus. And they and they don't need it. You know, we're talking about boluses. One of my things is everybody's oh they got to have 20 cc's per kilo. I, I, five to ten max is what I do boluses these days. I don't I don't do the 20, and because I don't know what their heart function is like and everything else. And I you know we deal with every size no matter what they are. But 
if you're going more than 10 cc's per kilo when you're trying to preempt mag i think it's a little much you can just kind of well and you do have the other flip side you know is what their physiologic state is it purely responsive to the catecholamine surge or are they really honestly dry because if they're not really honestly dry and you're giving them a large fluid bolus you're going to make the lungs wet and you've already got a hard time oxygenating and ventilating and now you just really screwed yourself because now it's a ton harder so i think being smart about how you administer fluids you can always give more it it gets complicated to take it back sure can you give lasix yeah whatever um but the reality is you have at least transiently created a significant problem if you overvent over um hydrate these people so i do give everybody that i get mag they get a fluid bolus um i do not push that bolus hard and fast um and i reassess throughout the process of the bolusing because they can get a lot worse if you overhydrated them um it is really important though to talk about that hypotension because i see people give it and they get shocked that the patient got significantly hypotensive and they weren't ready for it <clears throat> and now you're dealing with the problem you know I, I remind the the residents and the fellows that i teach all the time you know the most commonly used iv mag is for pregnant patients who are seizing or you're worried are going to seize and that's usually given over two to four hours we're given 50 milligrams per kilogram to a max of two grams over 20 minutes that's the recommended dosing and administration for albuterol or for, excuse me, for asthma. And that's fast and that's a lot. And so it is really common um, that they do that. Now, a lot of the, you know, anecdotal stuff says if you're, you know, pre-bolusing or at least, you know, can bowling at, bolusing at the same time, you don't see nearly as much of it, um, especially because in a lot of these patients, they're not truly, truly volume down. They're just catecholamining. Um, but you know, it, it seems to help a little bit to go ahead and do it at the same time, but don't be surprised if it happens. Uh, I, I've seen too many people make a return phone call when I'm taking their call. Uh, I, I gave the mag, like you said, and now the patient's like, their blood pressure has bottomed out. What do I do now? I'm like, well, go give them fluids, <laughs> go give them fluids. Um, but it is, it is really important to kind of bear in mind if you're doing that have yourself a situation ready, either be doing it at the same time, do it right after, but know that there's a good chance you're going to need to do something. And I mean, you know, with our program, we're limited on volume of fluids and different types of fluids on the airframe. Just everything's based off of weight in our world, right? So you may not have a liter or whatever you want to put it in, but if you've got all that available to you, I, a lot of times we go to these wonderful small facilities and they, they've got abundance in boxes of all kinds of different size things, 500s, 250s, 100s, matching you know, all kinds of junk. So mix it to where whatever bullets you want to do, put the mag in there and get it all at the same time. That's something I do. Um, again, depending on the size of the patient and what's going on with them. But I do a lot. And too, like I said, the, the whole how you do your 5 and 10 per K and stuff like that, that's that's fine. Yeah, if you're, if you're ground medic and street medic or whatever – you're told the 20 a K and all that, but you got to understand that 20 a K is your top end of a bolus there. Nothing says I've got to give them 20 a K and then I'm going to reassess. No, it's, it's a, from the time we start this bolus, we're assessing, assessing. So if you only get five to 10 into this patient, well, we got improvement. Okay, we're good. Call it right there. Then you still got this other on the backside that we can give if this patient starts tearing back down. So, um, Working our way through epi. So what is a mag? Pretty much we've all said if they're on continuous, they're getting mag. If they look anywhere severe, 
failure, even a heavy moderate case to pretty much getting mag. What is y'all's trigger pull with Epi? So for me with Epi, <clears throat> if I give the mag and, you know, like I said, you're giving it over 20 minutes and I don't see the patient begin to improve, um, at that point in time, I'm, I'm honestly pulling Epi. Um, you know, and mainly because with these kids, as long as they have no cardiac history or anything like that, they can handle the Epi. They can handle a little bit of the increased heart rate. Um, so that, that's me, because at that point, you know, you've given the mag, you've given their own continuous, you've given the, uh, the steroids and all that, and they're not getting better. You're, they're just working their way down that pathway to failure. And that's with these kids, you want to try your best not to get to that failure. So that's, that's for me, the, I pull Epi maybe faster than most, but that's, that's for me. Some of the liter some literature that I was actually reading earlier today, and it kind of goes back to your scoring system you talked about. Um, they were calling pulmonary index scoring. Yeah, there's, that's one of the others. And but they were like, if the pulmonary index scoring was twelve or greater, they were not excluding the the short acting beta agonist and the long acting beta agonist. We're mixing them together. They're not excluding. Let's pop them on there, but they're quick to roll that epi in there in conjunction with those short acting. So it's, it's getting kind of shotgun approaching it, but knowing what epi is and knowing how epi works inside the body, and we've gone from, eh, we're sick to, oh crap, we're sick. That's, yeah. Yeah, so I think, I think it's important to just remember, the way I think about epi kind of stems from albuterol, right? So albuterol is a selective, in theory, topical beta agonist problem is with any topical medicine if it can't get to there then it doesn't matter you can give all the epi in the, or all the albuterol in the world if it cannot get into a completely collapsed airway um, then it's not gonna work so I kind of have a couple trigger points for it if I have um, somebody calling in from the pre-hospital or from another hospital and they have a quiet chest I oftentimes just tell them to go ahead and try a dose of epi uh, because if the chest is clamped down and it's not moving air you can give whatever else the heck you want, and it's not going to do jack squat because it can't get there. It has to get there to do anything. Um, and so all you get is heart rate elevation with no changes in respiratory effort. So if somebody calls me from another location and has a quiet chest, I'm going to tell them to give epi. If air care calls or transport or if AMR is calling for help with medical control and they have a quiet chest, I'm just going to tell them to give epi. I give that before almost anything else in that setting Absolutely. when they're in the er with me and i'm sitting there and i can look at them i can maybe be a little bit more judicious about it and so um there is some literature that after two or three doses of epi the cardiac uh, fragility kind of comes into play and now the patient who's already getting a lot of beta agonists has gotten super amped up on epi and they can go into dysrhythmias um and so I'm a little bit more judicious about it in that context, but that's because I can see them, touch them, feel them. I can, I can do those things. If I have somebody that's calling for help and I can't do any of those things, a single dose of epi, like you said, probably not going to hurt anybody. Uh, as long as we dose it the correctly and give it the right way, um, then we should be fine. And all of a sudden, in a lot of cases, after that one dose of epi, all of a sudden the albuterol starts working a ton better because you've opened the airway enough to get that stuff in there and we start to see some improvements. So um, 
if you've got a topical medicine and can't get there, do something to help yourself. And so a dose of epi in that setting is super, super helpful. A lot of, um, a lot of, it depends on what literature you read, but a lot of literature is saying stick with IM. Again, my thing with IM, anything IM that's not IV, as long as they're perfused, let it, let it work, let it do its thing. It's going to work a little bit slower absorption. Um, something's kind of relatively controversial, but epi infusions. So like I'm with, I'm pretty much with branch. I, to me, you get one dose, you don't get any better after that dose of epi, you're going on an infusion. And the reason I like infusions is I can titrate it. I can back it off. If they start slamming PVCs or anything funky with it, uh, okay, cool, we're backing off of that stuff. To the patient. And yeah. It's more, it's more contoured. I think that's really helpful in the pre-hospital setting uh, where you are limited with space, you are limited with weight. You may or may not be able to carry multiple versions of this, right? So, because basically what you're describing is the role of terbutaline. Well, if you if you only got room for one or two of these drugs, like you're going to use Epi in so many different patients. So everybody's going to choose to stock their ambulance or stock their copter with Epi. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's a titratable IV beta agonist. Yeah, the literature is unclear as to how definitively helpful that is are there increased risks associated with continuous IV epi yes but there are risks with all of these things and ultimately like you said if you are attentive to the patient if you are watching them closely and you can see where things are starting to get hairy you turn that mess off yep. uh, it is very short acting in and of itself it gets out of the body really fast so you just turn it off um, and then you can kind of play with it, see what level was helpful, but not too harmful and kind of do those things. Um, so I think that's a really helpful way to look at that pre-hospital version of this type of care is because you don't have space for every single med. I mean, we're talking, you know, we, we've got a list of like six meds for albuterol. You're already starting to run out of space for other things. You know, if you've got to give if you've got to have an ambulance or a helicopter that's geared towards treating every type of patient, you can't dedicate that much space to just asthma. So I think an epi infusion is very reasonable. The um, other thing with me, especially with kids, a lot of times they'll tolerate one or two sticks. They're not going to tolerate a bunch of them. Um, so I, again, depending on access, sometimes you don't have an IV in a kid and you just stick them out, you know, give it to them, IM, be done with it, and then get an IV. A lot of times that infusion is a way around that, kind of help help yourself out, um, not make them too mad, still be your friend. So we've, we've mentioned it, talking about tributylene. Um, another one of my personal favorites with asthma, because I've seen it anecdotally, it works wonders. Um, adults, typically it's 250 mics sub-Q, or sub-Q, excuse me, um, every 30, 15 to 30 minutes, depending on what literature you read. But... With kids, typically we do it IV, IV bolus, and then the infusion behind it. Um, talking about trigger points, what about tributylene? Where, where does that come into play as far as where do y'all want to start giving it out? So for me, <clears throat> most time I always, because it's normally super fast, so I go with, I go with epi. And then if I begin to, if I don't see the, the change that I want at that point, I kind of go to tributylene at that. So... It just depends on basically how the how the patient reacts to the to the epi for me, you know, and that's prior to the epi to an epi infusion, you know, that's just my practice, but that's that's where I'm at with it. And tributylene, it, it's it's on the same lines as epi. 
like yeah. Dr. Moretti just said, it's on the same lines, except terbutaline is more geared towards being a selective yeah. beta-2 agonist. Um, so you kind of get, you get a little bit more bang for the buck, I guess what you're trying to say, for what you're treating at that point. So, I mean, it's, I think that one's on the table on your trigger points or it's kind of your preference on that. Um, I'm not saying either one's right or wrong right out the gate. I'm, I'm with Matt. I mean, if, if you're, you're sitting here and you're sucking high on me, yeah, I'm probably going to go epi. I'm going to try to get you out of the hole as quick as I can. And then, then I can look at these infusions in just a second. Which one's better than the other one? I really think that's patient specific, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I really am a huge fan of terbutaline. I think it's, for me, it has been the thing that has fixed the patients that I can't fix almost always with regards to meds. Um, for me, almost nobody gets epi or terbutaline until I'm advancing the airway mode um, because I think the airway modes have a bigger impact than the drugs um, when we're talking this end stage stuff. Yeah. Uh, which I, well, I know we'll talk about that later, but um, terbutaline tends to be one of my kind of last tools. Um, if the patient's just slowly kind of petering, then I'm probably not going to personally jump to epi in the ER setting. Um, I'll try the terbutaline and I'll just put them on an infusion. And it tends to pretty, have a pretty punchy impact. Um, now, if they acutely worsened, then that's when I start pulling out the epi. But I go to terbutaline when I have hit to that point where the patient's making no change whatsoever and I've done mag and I'm about a couple hours into the continuous and I'm seeing nothing happening. Um, we're not worsening, but we're not getting any better. I'll, I, I don't love leaving people on continuous for too, too, too long. So I'll pull out terbutaline after a few hours. But I've probably, like I said, I've, I've probably already done like moved them up the respiratory pathway. And so I don't have to give it all that often. I think for me, one of the other things that I like to use, if I walk in the door and they're truly an extremist, I do the Ben hit it best, the, the, the shotgun approach, approach of here's all the things and here's Epi. If we're a couple hours into this, I'm doing, doing it in a facility, facility, for example, and they, hey, they've done all, they've done the mag, they've done the butyrol. And, and they're still just not great, great but they're not wonderful. I mean, Tribulin is a great beta-2 agonist that is more selective. selective. It works better. Sometimes, sometimes I do the bolus, sometimes I don't, honestly. Yeah. It, it kind of depends on, it's truly patient-specific on how fast I want to get on board. I like the bolus option. I'm a big fan of it. But sometimes you just kind of want to ease it into them. You don't want to stun them with it all the fast. So Yeah, I mean, if their heart rate's 190 and they're already looking kind of janky, maybe don't hit them with 250. Um, it'll get there. Um, it's all That's all about steady state stuff. and um, But it definitely has a big impact when you hit them with it uh, right out the gate. And so, yeah, I, I think that it's patient-specific. I like to do the bolus, but I have done it without before key thing there it's selective doesn't mean it's <laughs> it does consistent. not perfect it is not perfect beta 2 it's not yeah, just it's a not beta 2 agonist it's a selective it likes beta 2 but it'll kiss on everything else yeah it'll, it'll touch it all it'll touch it all this is the conclusion of part one of our pediatric asthma episode please check out part two for invasive and non-invasive airway management strategies for pediatric asthma